as a main character, and people kind of follow the main character not because of what they do, but because of who they are. I guess the slogan for me of Web3 is trust but verify. Kia folks, and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and you just heard from James Bailey discussing Web3 and decentralization and really what can happen when power and brand accrue around a central individual, as we've recently seen. James is the Chief Operating Officer of Subquery and On Finality, which are basically data service providers focusing on non-EVM chains such as Polkadot and Cosmos. In this conversation, we talk about indexing blockchain data, making it available for users and apps to query in a manner that's efficient, quick, and reliable. We also talk about Polkadot and where it sits in the blockchain landscape, decentralization and the blockchain trilemma, and creating a data marketplace in Web3. Before we get to James, a word from our sponsor. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. And now, my conversation with James Bailey. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And uh, so let's start right in with talking about indexing data within a blockchain. And uh, I'm going to perhaps just interrupt you a bunch and really try to get down to some of the details about this. So open-ended question here, why do we need to index data on a blockchain? Okay, so to break it down really simply, the way that we store data in a blockchain is it's kind of great for decentralization. It's this marvel of engineering, um, being able to have this ledger that uh, records everything in perpetuity and then everyone can, you can decentralize that ledger and everyone can have their own copy and verify trustlessly that that copy is true and accurate. But the way that we store that data, um, it's essentially a linked list. Each block in the chain points to the next block. Um, And if you kind of think of an analogy in the real world, um, a blockchain is the same as like a book. Imagine a paper book on your desk. And so when you want to go and talk to a blockchain, and if you want to save information, it's very simple, right? You just add a new block to the chain, you just write a new page to your book. But if you want to ask a blockchain a question like, give me the last 10 transactions I've made, that's like a very basic question that every wallet needs to do, right? For sure. You want that ordered history. You need an ordered history of the last 10 transactions or interactions I've made with this blockchain. The last last transfers of the NFT, the last 10 transactions my account has made. That's like asking the book to tell me, what are the last 10 pages this character appeared on? And the only way you can determine that purely by looking at the the book is going and just leafing through the pages and scanning yeah. each page for that character's name. It's the same thing with a blockchain. It's the same thing with searching through a linked list. And so the whole process of indexing is to realize that you can't really change that. The best way is to constantly analyze a blockchain. And every time a block is added or a page is written, you analyze that block or that page and you scan through and you pick off the information that you want. Now, there's a lot of information on in a blockchain. When you're, when you're kind of running... Ethereum, for example, we're talking about 10 terabytes of data. Yeah. So processing 10 terabytes of data in real time to show you a list of transactions isn't feasible. But if you pull out just the transactions that you want, 
just the information that you need to build your application and makes it a lot more performant, a lot more faster. Okay, so if we stick with the book analogy, uh, which I like. So first of all, what you're talking about when you write data to the blockchain, you're adding pages yeah. at the end yeah. or in sort of one direction. And then... Unless you're a DAG, which another word. Okay. Way, but let's just leave that for now. <laughs> um, and then if you want to find out when your character appeared within the text, you're scanning through all the text and basically just doing a search for whenever Jeff shows up. Yeah. Um, now, okay, so can't we do that easily? Like computers are fast and... Well, no, we're talking about 16 million blocks for Ethereum, each block having... Oh, yeah, 16 million blocks, each block having quite a bit of information, each block stored in a different place. Yes, you can search for it, but we're talking about a matter of, of hours to search okay. through those numbers. Like, computers are fast, but not that fast. Okay. It's unstructured text search. Okay, so it's it's unstructured that yeah. you're going through, and so uh, indexing is... Indexing is taking this information from this book and putting it into a database, which is like a spreadsheet. You can search, you can sort, you can filter you can do more complex criteria. So we've gone from kind of like, uh, uh, what do they say that uh, blockchain is kind of like a dumb database? Yes, uh, into to a, a smart database. The it, best databases that us humans have worked on for the last 30 years. Of okay, right. I've, I've been thinking about this a little, a little bit too, right? So databases, we have like, we're going on like 60 years of like yeah. research into database systems and they're, they're getting, I don't know if they're getting quite good, but it seems like they are quite good. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you another question here. When you go to Etherscan mm -hmm. and I put in my address. That's a database. Okay, so it seems like Absolutely. all my history comes up and it's, and it's quick. Because it's a database. Okay. Because there are tables that like, there are, one of the columns would be your account address and then there'll be tables that show all the events and transactions involved with that address. And so yeah. when you're jumping around, if you're looking at transaction history, you're not querying a blockchain. Uh, and, uh, and so what, Etherscan is doing this for our benefit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Etherscan is, I believe, owned by, owned by Consensus, right? Which is owned by, also owns Metamask. Yes. So yes, this is all kind of public good companies. They, they obviously advertise on the website. Um, but we're starting to see this. As, as, as Web3 matures, you're starting to come up against these kind of boundaries of what is feasible and what kind of works from a technical perspective. Um, and as we try to push forward to that point where the average person can kind of interact with it and not be confused at the outset by these obscene and strange kind of behaviors that you have to do in Web3. Um, as we try to kind of move towards that future, um, we're kind of pushing up against these limitations. And so we're looking at these approaches that worked in Web2 and the, the normal tech world and trying to port those over and make those work in a decentralized way. Okay. And I mean, it seems to me like these are kind of running in, in parallel. If you're running an indexer creating a database, yeah and then you're harvesting the data right from the blockchain. Um, is there like an inefficiency here? Yes, yeah, I, yeah, you know, you could argue there is an inefficiency um, there, but we're not trying to change the storage medium. We're not trying to change the consensus. We're not trying to, we're not trying to affect the stability of the blockchain itself. We're yep. just trying to provide a very narrow view into that blockchain that's really fast for that particular purpose. And so subquery itself, what we focus on open source data indexing. So rather than the general purpose data set, and there are many providers that provide access to APIs of blockchain data. So if you want an NFT API or a transactions API, you can get that. Even Etherscan provide one, for example. What we specialize in is 
allowing a customer of ours to export and extract any data they want. So we work for we work across six different chains, um, and you can say that on the chain at every time the block's written, any time this particular event or smart contract is interacted with, I want to run this little function, and this function is a, like a data transformation pipeline, and you can define exactly what's pulled off that that blockchain, exactly how it's saved, um, and exactly how um, that data can be presented to your application. And the result of that is, rather than building a clone of the standard OpenSea you know, NFT platform or whatever wallet that everyone's got the same because it's the exact same user experience, you can build your own unique application that has its own features unique to yours and its own you know user interface that's unique to yours. Um, so we specialize in the weird and wonderful. Okay, uh, the weird and wonderful. Weird and wonderful. Weird and is... wonderful. Uh, there, there's a lot of weird out there. Um, oh, yes. Uh, I guess it's nice and optimistic to think that there's also some wonderful. Um, generally, generally, I'm optimistic about the space and do see that there's, there's going to be lots of the wonderful as well. Um, okay, so let's go back a little bit. How do we, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you build this database? And also blocks are coming relentlessly and sometimes they're coming quite quickly yep. uh how do you keep up with that yeah blocks are coming quickly um there are chains like uh solana for example um to run a validator on solana which is the the process to actually verify and add blocks to the chain you have to basically put a supercomputer onto it um so chains like solana are quite difficult i'm going to shift those outside of the scope here all right um but most chains like ethereum um cosmos um algorand avalanche um, Polygon, you know, the block times aren't that obscene um, and it's a linear block kind of rate. Um, let's say a block is every six seconds or a block is every one second. That's within the realms of, of indexing. So Okay, one second is not nah, obscene. Not that bad. That's okay. Depends what you have to do, right? If, yeah. you, if you, for example, want to run a function on every block and that function has to then make an API call to 50 different websites and the sum total of those 50 different website API calls are more than a second, then you're going to struggle. Okay, that is not going to work. Right. Um, so that, every, that's unlikely, though, right? Because, that's unlikely. Yeah. Because every block, you know, it's a ideally you're dealing with a decentralized store, so you are only interacting with yeah occasional blocks. With occasional blocks. Um, the way that works as a high level, it's very flexible. So um, you define exactly what trigger points you want to look for on the chain, and when those trigger points occur, what you do with that information that you pull off and how you save that. And it's all just written in TypeScript. It's a very simple process. It's essentially, we build a developer tool that developers then use themselves. It's open source, um, and they can go off and put this into their own backend. Um, it's interesting for us, though, that our focus really is on growing our developer community. Um, it's on making it easy for developers to get started here. So um, like every Web3 project, and especially many Web3 projects are open source, um, we have to really focus on ensuring that developers have every tool they need to, to get started. Right. Yeah. And so is that working to your benefit so far, the open source it, aspect? It's a good challenge. But um, the open source aspect is, is very important in this space. People in this space, because there's a real monetary aspect involved with token management, um, if your product isn't open source, then people don't trust it as much. Code is, code is law in right. this space. Um, to a fault, but no, that, that <laughs> kind of generally holds. Uh, so having something that's open source is quite important. Um, 
that's one of the thing about Web three is that it's a it's a domain of very smart software engineers right now, um, trying to work out how to bring this to the masses. Yeah, and so this open source ethos is sort of what I would I would call it is uh, I, I see it as being since. Bitcoin, blockchain, Web3, I see it as being flipped. And now it's almost, to me, the default mm -hmm. where you need to have your beginnings or something that's open sourced so that people uh, have that you know, trust in your brand to exactly. begin with. Yeah, and uh, you, like, there are some projects that are closed source that people trust because they are huge. They are well established. But we've also seen what happens when that doesn't go that well, right? Like Coinbase, for example, is one of the biggest companies in, in the world in, in crypto. They they have one of the largest exchanges. They, you know, they have huge custody volumes of, um, of Bitcoin, for example. I believe something silly like, like a double-digit percentage of all Bitcoin has been held in custody with Coinbase. Double, double, so like 14, 15. 14, 15 percent of all Bitcoin in, the, yep. in, in circulation right now has been held by Coinbase. It's something ridiculous like that. And they're closed source. Um, and people trust them right now. But you've also seen recently what happens when, you know, a closed source product or application yeah. doesn't work. And, you know, if the, if the demise of FTX is a great wake up call for everyone in the space. And it, it, it results in every other exchange hurriedly trying to release proof of reserves. To verify to everyone yeah. that um, that what they have is is on the books. Coinbase, um, you know, they get a lot of shit. Um, I guess part of it is because, like you say, uh, they're still running, you know, in this closed source Web two yeah. corporate environment. And uh, I heard from I heard from someone. I don't know if it's part of their mission, but that they uh, their goal is to like try to be the Google of yeah. um, of crypto and and to do it all. And I mean, I guess they're still standing. Uh, so well, one one aspect of them is that they are publicly traded, so they do have to provide some pretty um, thorough yeah. accounting and financial statements to the you know SEC every quarter that well, you can use to verify. What do you reckon about this whole FTX business that has uh, toppled over everything? And there's quite a few dominoes all linked together. Do you have a take on that? Um, like it, it's it was. It was interesting how it happened with um, CZ um, dropping that news on Twitter and suddenly triggering a bank run and everything kind of going downhill from there. But it is a lesson that, and one that we continue to learn in this space is that there are some personalities that have become a bit of a cult following. Um, you know, you saw that with Duquan and Terra. Yeah. You've seen that with, you saw that with SBS. There's this idea of the main character. There's a main character, and people kind of follow the main character, not because of what they do, but because of who they are. Um, and it's a lesson for us all that, you know, this is, I, think, I guess, the slogan for me of Web3 is trust, but verify, you know? Um, you know, you can trust stuff, but you should right. always be able to verify that that something is true. And if FTX, we couldn't verify it until, and one, once we found out that it was all held up by House of Cards. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. I, I was one of these people that was also, you know, dupe. I was just following the narrative. Mm. I was like, oh, this guy seems... Oh, yes. He was... Seems like he's just like playing, you know, 40 chess or whatever the analogy is. He's well ahead of us. And, uh, you know, since all the... Since the House of Cards has come down, I heard one person describe it as like, Everyone thought that he had this money machine through yeah, Alameda, Alameda Research, yeah. right? Close, close source. We don't know how he's doing it, but yeah. he's doing it, right? This is a, a wonder kid. Uh, and of course, now, now we know 
that the money machine was everyone's money. Well, as we know, you know, past past returns can never um, guarantee future returns. Yeah, so uh, and he got lucky, you know, doing the kimchi premium years ago. That's how he kind of made his billions. Is was trading oh, yeah. Bitcoin. What, what was this? I I remember this vaguely. So back in the day, when when exchanges and and weren't as numerous and and moving assets around the world was a bit more difficult. Uh, there was something called the kimchi premium, which I believe is South Korea. Um, Bitcoin always traded at a premium in South Korea. So he went through the effort of registering a business in South Korea, um, setting up all the arbitrage um, situations so he could, let's say, buy Bitcoin in Korea, yeah. immediately exchange that or transfer that to another account and sell that offshore in, let's say, for example, Coinbase, and then pocket the difference. And if you do that with enough Bitcoin, yeah. there's a lot of money to be made. Yeah, that's right. So South Korea had sort of uh, tight export controls. Tight, tight export controls, and it's quite difficult to, to to get into an exchange in Korea. I believe there's some, some pretty high levels of um, security, especially after Mt. Gox many years ago. Yeah, going going, going way all back. All the way back. Um, were you... I know you were you were alive. Were you following crypto at that time? Yeah, I remember, I remember hearing about Bitcoin when it cracked, like 800 bucks. And this was years ago. I didn't really have the technical ability or skill to figure out how to mine it okay and i also didn't quite have or I kind of lost interest into it a little bit after it cracked a thousand dollars um about buying it i thought it was really cool but um i didn't get into it and i kind of you know you kick yourself yeah later on. but you know there's there's would have should have could have and you can't live your All life that. like that right yeah, yeah yeah um i uh i remember the the stories about mount gox at the time um, but I hadn't yet invested anything, and I kind of had a had a similar attitude. I was like, "Oh, after Mt. Gox crashed, I it came off my list, yeah, off my radar list." But that's I, the thing, right? And 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 Web three kind of moves in these boom and bust cycles. We always talk about the bull market and the bear market, and it's very true in this industry. We have been through quite a few of them in the past. Um, we had Mt. Gox triggered one. Um, we had a big one in twenty eighteen, of course. Remember, um, we had a mini one last year, like a really small one. Um, that everyone talked about the the, bull, the bear cycle, and then and then um, we are now entering a big one now. Um, so you see this with with um, Web three, and this is one of the, the big downsides of Web three. There is so much interest in the the value of the token and the tokens in the space that you kind of get this effect where people just the inflows of money are just humongous, and they. The prices surge, and that creates a cyclical effect. You know this tulip mania, um, and then of course it, it busts, and it does every so often. And it kind of it's inevitable will happen. Us working, us developing, us building in the industry, we we know what's happening. We kind of aware it's happening, but it's a distraction for us. We kind yeah. of wish that it wasn't so boom and bust, um, because it just distracts from the main point, and that is that, you know, even though that this is happening, and and the value of of, of all the crypto assets combined has decreased by a huge amount since its peak in I think, January. Um, there are still thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of developers still building in the space and still working on it. Um, you know, you, you look at the the crash of 1999, the, the dot-com crash back then, you know, everyone was laughing about pets.com and the shady right. people making the next, trying to bank a big buck on some random internet business that was going to fail from the start. But throughout that, people kind of carry on building. And 20 years later, we take the internet for granted and everything we do is on the internet. You know, you guys will be watching this on the internet. Uh, maybe in 20 years' time from here, 
a lot of our financial systems will be run on blockchains. So there's this uh, expression, right? Uh, bear markets are for building. So as a as yeah. a as a builder, someone whose colleagues are you know actually doing things, do yeah. you do you agree? Do you, is that oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great, and it's it's really it's quite a relief because the bull, the bull cycle is so much hype. It gets really busy, <laughs> and especially for us working down in, in New Zealand and a lot of our customers have been in Europe, it means that um, yeah, it didn't have any um, free nights last last year. So I'm quite <laughs> enjoying just things to slow down just a little bit paper off a bit, especially as we come into summer, um, so we can kind of get back to the basics and focus on building a good product, which is what we're here to do. So you mentioned about Solana requiring a supercomputer. Yeah, they have very uh, intense requirements to run a node. Um, tying this into the open source aspect mm -hmm. of, of what you're into, uh, is part of this also then that you're, you can run a node for me and I don't have to, even though I can use your uh, open source templating, I don't have to do it myself? So with SubQuery, that's kind of what our goal is. So we started SubQuery as a kind of a centralized company. So you, it's open source software, but we provide a centralized service that people can use to run that project with. And they can run it themselves, but we run a lot of our customers' indexing processes for them. Um, the big goal for us, though, and I think for every Web3 team, is full decentralization. So if you look at the tech stack of building a Web3 application, there are some. there are two main components right now that that still are kind of centralized and the first one is the way that you interact with the node so nodes can't run on a phone they can't run on your browser yet um, they're too heavy too expensive um, so you generally when you're building an application you will interact with a rpc provider so a, a an interface to the blockchain and this is something like infura you might have heard about yeah sure um, so that's one aspect the second aspect is the data layer where do you get your data from it has to be from a database somewhere uh, to make it faster, um, who runs that database? And what happens when that goes down inevitably? Um, the, the one thing you can't let a decentralized application do is go down. That is, that is not good, okay? That's, a, that's like the emperor with no clothes. Right. Um, so our mission with SubQuery is to decentralize it. And this is kind of one of our big goals coming through is basically um, anyone around the world can run your your indexing process. You can write your indexing process, you can go to the world and say, please run this and provide that data back for the users of my application. Um, the subquery network manages that. So it confirms that this other per party is running the right project, that it confirms that they're giving the right data, that they're actually not faking the data, they've done the hard work. And it manages the exchange of value between the users of that data, essentially your app and your app's users, and the, the people running the indexes themselves. So just to clarify a bit here, so when you said about putting out your query into the network and then asking for someone to provide that data yeah. back, uh, are we talking like a marketplace here? Marketplace, yeah, okay. exactly right, data marketplace. So you don't know who you're requesting data from, you don't know who they are, you don't, you don't need to trust them, you just know that you, I can verify that this data that they're giving me is correct and it's the data that I need for my application. And I'm getting somebody else to do this because I don't have the manpower. Or it's well, I don't want to. I don't want the risk that it goes down under my yeah. watch. I don't want to spend okay. my life running production infrastructure. Yeah. I would like maybe three people around the world to run this. So the inevitable time when one of them goes down, two are still up there to take the, take the slack. Okay. So is this the decentralized aspect? That's the decentralized aspect. Okay. So that's what we're working for, the subgreen network. And it's a very interesting um, piece because you have to design the economics of that, mar that marketplace to you're trying to design a model where 
if if I cease to exist and Subquery ceases to exist and, and all of us Kiwis in New Zealand go to the beach for summer, it still operates. You know, it still runs itself. So you're trying to bring economics into this. And, um, you know, you being a, a mathematics and physics lecturer, you probably can also understand a bit about this. Um, where it's quite interesting trying to figure out the models of how you reward people to maximize um, the work that they do, but also the amount of their own stake that they put into their work, the amount of skin they put into the game. Um, so we've got a lot of, this is where it comes into token economics. And that's one of the most interesting aspects of Web3 is designing these alternative economic models to push behavior towards running something in perpetuity. And so part of this could be that I could, so let's, let's say I want some specific data mm -hmm. for my app. Uh, I'm going to go to the network and I can then incentivize someone to do that right. data collection for me yeah. via... Paying them subquery tokens, essentially. Via token. Yeah. Okay. Is this token... Uh, where do I get the token from? We haven't is... launched yet. We're trying to get it right, okay? okay. So we're not, we're not like one of those teams in 2018 that would just launch a token and, 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 and figure out what, what it means later. Right. You know the next question that's coming, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like what, why do you have a token? And you know, isn't this just going to ruin your project? Well, that's great. It's an excellent question, right? Why do we need a token? So if you want to do this in a completely decentralized way, how do you ensure people are still going to do to run these indexes and provide this data to your application in 10 years' time? Yeah. Okay. And the best way to do that is figure out an economic model where you kind of encourage and incentivize that behavior. And having your own token allows you to write the specific economic environment to encourage that, that ultimate outcome, okay? Yes, you could use USDC, but you can't, you can't control the way that USDC can be exchanged. So for example, you know, look at like a simple example that people might understand is, is the way that validators are rewarded for proof-of-stake networks. So most networks these days are now proof-of-stake, thank God. Um, proof-of-work was a proof-of-waste more, rather, is one of the worst things that we ever did, and we need to get rid of it as soon as possible. So now that Ethereum's moved on... So Ethereum's got, moved on. We've got one more to go, I think, really. But I think <laughs> that Bitcoin would have changed, unfortunately. Um, but proof-of-stake is basically saying to the world, we're going to reward you for running this expensive computer to verify transactions in the network and to make sure that network never gets attacked and never gets corrupted, okay? And yes, you could say, well, why don't you just reward these people with USDC or USDT, you know, a stable coin? But you can't control the way that, like, the payout ratios. So, for example, if you have 10 validators versus 100 validators, you, you, you know, do, do you make it so that the rewards are kind of logarithmically allocated based on the performance? Do you make it so that you... you try to tend the network towards a stable amount of 30 validators versus an unsustainable amount of 1,000 validators because there's only so much rewards to go around. Yeah. So you know, having your own token allows you to write the contracts of how this token is distributed, how it is rewarded, how it, is kind of how it flows through your, your economic model. It's tricky, right? Dealing with incentives? Dealing with incentives, great. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a fun topic. I like and if that. I could ever go back and do a different world other than software engineering, I would have been a token oh, economic model. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Not that, not that it's hard. No, it's great. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not hard. It just requires you to think laterally in yeah. terms of... Um, it's not just like the incentives that you're trying to behave, but it's also like what are some other perverse incentives that this incentive might also behave? Like if you were trying to break the system, and this bounds, how could you do it? And how do you protect against that person doing it? And uh, is there an angle here as well? If I'm only after like a 
tiny bit of compute time or data querying. Yeah, that's uh, also like, how do you ensure that really small users also have the same access as someone as a gorilla that wants to spend and splurge tons of money? So how do you in this network, for example, you know, indexes want certainty of revenue because they've spent a lot of time to set up the infrastructure and index that data. You want certainty of reliability so that you're pretty sure that your users are going to be able to use your app next week and the index is not going to just turn around and say, nah. So these kind of contracts in place, you know? How reliable are we talking here? I saw a figure on your website and I was like, oh, it seems high, 99 point something something. Yeah, we're trying to aim for four nine. So um, the gold standard for availability, I guess if you're looking at like a, an AWS or an yep. Azure, you're talking about six nines. And that's pretty ridiculous. I think in some aspects it's five nines. So, so it's like one in a million. It's 99.9% of time. So three nines is one day, essentially. So 99.9% uptime yep. is one day down. No, it's eight hours down a year. So it's, it's, one, bad, less than a day, yeah. it's one bad sleep. Okay. If you have one bad night and you go to sleep and it goes down, you wake up next morning, you've broken that rule. You've missed your, your, your shot. Okay. Four nines is like one hour per day per year okay so one, one hour not good per enough. year yeah one hour per year yeah let's hope it's not so when the next uh, coinbase kind of, article drops that's, that's the kind of reliability that is an infrastructure uh so as i said before we have a centralized service that's the reliability that we're aiming for yeah so that we can say to our customers you have a decentralized app it theoretically should never go down we promise we'll try not to never go down for sure yeah. is that expensive has that been hard it's been difficult. Yeah. It's, it's a process to get there. Um, so we have a pretty sizable DevOps team. Yeah. Um, and it's just about making sure that we have the monitoring in place and the backups in place to get there. What is On Finality? So On Finality is another um, brand or company that um, we do here. Um, so SubQuery is about data management. On Finality is infrastructure management. So it's very similar in Fura. Um, and when you're building an application, you need to interact with blockchain. As I said before, you can't run these nodes on your phone. You can't run them on your browser. Um, we run thousands of nodes for our customers that they can interact with and save data to the blockchain on their behalf. So on Finality, we focus on non-Ethereum networks. So we're equivalent to a Fura. Um, we focus on networks like Polkadot, Cosmos, um, Algorand, Avalanche, these other kind of newer networks they're coming through and we provide endpoints that people can, can, can then kind of save data to the blockchain and we kind of process that for them. Um, we do over a billion requests per day, API requests from across, you know, 50 different, 50 yeah. different networks all around the world. So sounds high. Can you benchmark that with some something people might oh, be more familiar with? Or? I, yeah, an API call right with them, like at, at peak lows, we'll do like 6,000 API calls per second. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's a lot of traffic coming through. We have a big size way to be a spill. Okay. Yeah. And can one exist without the other? Like no, they they are they are different companies, but they kind of are symbolic because um, you need to access a node to index that data. So I guess you know on finality is used by subquery to get access to data, but they are and for intensive purposes separate businesses with separate models. So subquery we're moving to this decentralized model. We'll be a true yeah. Web three company with a token. Mm -hmm. Um, on finality is going to be a very boring old fashioned business. All oh, right. Um, and it is a very boring old fashioned business because it's the business of infrastructure. It's a bit sta stable is the name. Yeah. Well, I mean, you want, 
you want to make and sell the picks and shovels in a gold rush. Well, picks and shovels is very important. Both of these are picks and shovels plays, and that's the thing, right? There are lots of builders around the world, and that's one thing us in New Zealand, we don't understand as much. And we see it um, anywhere around the world where, you know, us Kiwis are very lucky. We have stable governance. You know, we know that if the bank screws you over, you can go to the, you know, consumer protection authorities. Yep. You can, you know, you can, you know, you'll be done right in most cases. There aren't really many cases where some, the small man gets screwed over. Yeah. Most countries around the world don't have that, that, you know, that benefit. You know, we're very lucky, that privilege. Yeah, the um, global nature of this whole industry is, you, you know, sometimes overlooked. Yeah. You know, especially by, you know, people in the West, People, Americans, New Zealanders. Well, Americans, say, Americans are really into it because you know they they see the dysfunction of the American government and they see blockchain as a very as a transparent, um, you know, corruptionless kind of alternative. Europeans, they're just anarchistic. I don't know what's up the Europeans. They're always it's a bit interesting, um, but especially in Southeast Asia and China and Africa, especially, um, you're seeing a lot of pickup of Web three. Even in South America, there's corruption, there's inefficiencies in the system. People are locked out of existing systems because they don't have enough money um, or liquidity and stuff like that. So um, blockchain and Web3 is huge in these places. And so if, if you're trying to build a blockchain company in New Zealand, you, you don't start with a customer base in New Zealand. You straight away go overseas. You, you know, selling a New Zealand blockchain company, I was in a discussion with someone about this recently, like what makes a New Zealand blockchain company or what makes a blockchain company New Zealand based? Yeah. And like, is it most of your revenues are from New Zealand? Well, that doesn't really exist because most of our revenues are overseas and always will be. There's not enough customers here. Um, doesn't mean that most of the people that you hire in New Zealand, well, you know, it just it helps, but like the fluidity of, of people working in the space. Yeah, not means, anymore, right? Yeah, like why, like there are so many smart contracts solidity or Rust developers in the world. They're in high demand. Why do I need to hire someone in the same office anymore? Um, so I don't know the answer to that question about what makes a New Zealand blockchain <laughs> company New Zealand, but you are, uh, one thing I note have in my notes here is that you, at the bottom of your GitHub, you have this thing that says made with love all the way from New Zealand. Yeah. Cause that's, we have to be proud of that. <laughs> um, we do have a very good reputation overseas. We're a little Switzerland at the bottom of the world. And, uh, um, I thought that was like a quintessential Kiwi thing to like, just right at the bottom. Oh, yeah. by the way. Yeah. We're from New Zealand. Yeah, I think it's just said chua as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about New Zealand and and Web three. Uh, as far as I know, uh, subquery sort of came out of centrality, or a bunch of you used to work in the centrality ecosystem. A bunch of us used to work there. Okay, um, centrality's done a really good job in the in the past. You know, since two thousand seventeen or sixteen when I started, I believe. Um, of incubating a lot of teams in New Zealand and a lot of people as well. And there's been a lot of new businesses spawned out of people that, that used to work with centrality. Um, you know, there's, there's us, there's other, um, teams in Auckland I can, um, think of. Um, yep. but yes, we, um, we kind of initially started by talking to them and, and, and realizing that the problems that, that were there in centrality also existed across the industry. So you mentioned Polkadot a few times. You said, uh, you say you're concentrating on non-Ethereum-based, so non-EVM yeah. chains. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think we've had a guest on yet that has mentioned Polkadot. Can you 
Give us a primer. Why is Polkadot, it's what it is? Why is it different than the other chains? So let's look at the history of blockchains. So if we go back to this, there's kind of three generations of blockchains that we can look at. The first one was um, Bitcoin, generation one, just a transaction kind of ledger, um, pretty straightforward. Generation two was um, earmarked by the arrival of Ethereum. Ethereum was a groundbreaking innovation. It was still proof of work, but it allowed you to have smart contracts. So rather than store... Um, just information about a transaction, you could store a contract or an executable script to run when something happens. And so you can design these decentralized systems that actually have logic to them, which is great if you're running something like Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange. Um, Ethereum is amazing. Um, Ethereum, we're still kind of characterizing as, well, old Ethereum is, you know, generation two. Generation three is the next, kind of came through about two or three years ago. And basically, I looked at Generation 2, Ethereum, and many others, and so there's a few problems here. One is that they're proof of work, okay? So they're still very um, expensive to run, damaging the planet. Um, they give everyone a really simple reason why not to do blockchain, and that is because it's <laughs> got the environmental impact of a small country, which is fair enough, okay? As I said, I'm not for proof of work. Um, it's, so it's hard. It's hard to get into. It's expensive, hard hardware, and at it, the end of the day, you might just have to. It was it. a great option ten years ago, right? You know, when you when you imagine this being a small network being run by a thousand people around the world, but when you're talking about a huge system like Bitcoin, uh, people push that to limits. You know, and this is again the thing about token economics: you design from zero to infinity. It's quite hard to design reward rates that kind of go for that. Level. Yeah, those growth stages yeah. in between quite hard to capture. But yeah, so generation three, they looked back and thought proof of work, bad idea. So a few other things came up: proof of stake being the, the main one here. Proof of stake being rather than reward you for doing Sudoku's on your machine, we're going to reward you for the amount of the to the network's asset you have staked. So i.e. the amount of skin you have in the game that the network is successful. Okay? Um, proof of stake is one aspect. The other part was that, look, these networks here, they can't really change. Like They require 51% of the voting of all like asset holders to vote one way. And that there was a couple of situations in Ethereum where things happened, especially the DAO hack that happened. Right where the community really tore itself apart and inevitably forked. And they kind of learned that, you know, 51% representation of voting, a lot of people don't care about voting, a lot of people won't turn out, they'll abstain. Um, a lot of people don't really know the full details of like a technical change. So 51% voting isn't great. And so they designed these voting mechanisms where governance could come into play. You can have a small elected body to decide and govern the network and to potentially vote on changes, very similar to our parliamentary system. Um, imagine if we ran New Zealand via referendums, how expensive and, and, and slow that would Just, be. Yeah, it'd be you ongoing. It'd be ongoing. And we get a lot of um, local optimums rather than global optimums. But anyway, so Generation 3 blockchains uh, came through that kind of tried to solve these two problems, proof of stake and governance. So you have examples of like Cosmos, Polkadot, um, Avalanche to an, to an extent, um, Algorand as well, Near coming through, Solana as well. You know, a few of these names you might have heard of. Um, of course, Ethereum moved to proof of stake, so we can now kind of call it Generation 3, but the governance is still missing. But um, we focus on those Generation 3 networks, and the belief behind that is that you've got you got to try to skate to where the puck will be, not where it is, okay? If you're a smart developer... Yes, you can develop where all the, the volume is right now, and a lot of people do, right. Ethereum. But if you want to use the latest and the greatest and kind of 
build things using new technologies, which a lot of blockchain engineers will do because they're nerds at heart. Generation 3 blockchains where it is at. So that's what we're focused on. So we support Polkadot, Cosmos, Avalanche, Algorand, um, maybe near soon, maybe Solana as well. Okay, so I think that was a really good evolutionary take on where we are now. Mm-hmm. In terms of Polkadot, where, where does the governance part yeah, come so in? So Polkadot and Cosmos have gone another step further, and they think, hang on, these general purpose chains like Ethereum, they're quite inefficient, right? You have all these different applications running on them. All of them are slightly different. They've got their smart contracts that run their own logic, but they're all running on the same chain itself, which makes that chain very heavy, very expensive. And in order to like get your... Um, data into that block, you have to pay a bigger fee. Okay, when we saw the bear, the bull market, just doing a transfer on, on Ethereum was like sixty US dollars yep. during some of the that was insane. Peaks, right? People are paying half an ETH to mint exactly because like that's the congestion on the chain. There's only so much space in that block, and so Cosmos and Polkadot thought, well, hang on, people want to build their own applications and they want to do their own thing. So why not give them their own chain to do that on? Okay. So that means you have your own chain. You can set your own rules for the chain. You can set a higher block time to make a faster, more like more okay. latency product. Yep. Um, and you have your low gas fees because it's just you using it. Um, but then they, you know, rather than just giving you your own chain, which you could just go off and build yourself anyway, the problem with building your own chain is that you just get this island of all these <laughs> islands of different chains that don't talk to each other, don't interact, and all kind of like, you know. Just not interacting. Oh, yeah, it's a, and that's, it's a wasteland. It's a, it's a terrible user yeah. experience, right? If you want to move your assets from Solana to Ethereum, you kind of have to go through an exchange or for a bridge, you know? Like, it's it's, it's not really a great user experience to move something from Solana to Ethereum because yeah, they're in, yeah. incompatible right now. Especially this year, year of the bridge hacks. Year of the bridge hacks, yeah. really bad idea, okay? Holding a lot of money and a contract on a chain, waiting for it to come back, bad idea. It's a vector so for attack. in Polkadot... You don't need to bridge between so your chains? Polkadot and Cosmos, they are both multi-chain kind of views, and we're seeing Avalanche pick this up as well. Their view is that, yes, you can build your own chain, but it's got to fit and, and it's got to fit within the criteria of our standard chain, okay? So it's got to be able to talk the same language. It's got to speak this, like walk the same walk. And ultimately, the goal here is that you allow people to build their own chains, but they are all um, kind of automatically or, or by default interoperable. Yeah. They can all talk to each other. Polkadot, Cosmos does in a way where, okay, all your chains are just, they all operate independently. They all kind of have their own validators, but they all talk the same language. Polkadot takes it to the next level where they say, well, look, it's like a hub and spoke model. So you can have your own chain, but they all have to kind of sync to this main chain. And the reason why it syncs to this main chain is about security. So if you're on Cosmos and you have all these different chains, they all talk the same language but you have your, all your different validators, uh, you can do 51% attacks pretty easily because all the volume secure, securing the network or the assets securing the networks, yep. they're and, all fragmented. And with an attack, you can move it around. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so if you're a big whale, you can yep. suddenly have more validation power than anyone else and you can do a 51% attack on that chain. Polkadot, however, with that hub and spoke model, if you want to do a 51% attack of the chain, you'd do a 51% attack on the core chain. So it's like a shared security model where the core chain kind of vets and verifies yeah. everything okay. else. Yeah, shared security model, that that's, sounds good. As far as we know, as far as you know, have there been issues with that? 
so far? Is it, is Not it really, smoothly? no. Yeah. No, it's smoothly. Um, it's taking time, right? This is, these are very chaotic systems to design and build. So it's ev- like everything, it takes longer than you'd like it to. Um, it's interesting seeing this multi-chain view proliferate and expand. Um, we've now we've got Polkadot kind of led it, and then Cosmos led it as well. Um, you're seeing Avalanche come through with subnets. You're seeing um, Cardano come through. Uh, I forgot about Avalanche. Yeah, the subnets um, is what they're called. And called. you're also looking at Polygon is now talking about their own supernets idea. So it's becoming a popular thing these days. Um, will it work? We'll find out. We'll come back. Maybe we'll do this in two <laughs> years' time and say, has this worked, right? Yeah. Um, but we're currently, and this is one of the best things about Web3 is we're in such a state of flux, such a state of change, that, you know, kind of being on the leading edge of, of what's happening, it's it's hard to say if it's worked yet. You're kind of saying it's looking promising. You know, there's a lot of volume right. there. There's a lot of activity <laughs> there. But, you know, it still need to take to the next level. Um, in terms of the blockchain trilemma, if we've got shared security, uh, leftover, we've got decentralization and scaling. Um, so in theory, is this going to take care of that? Yeah, blockchain dilemma, um, trilemma. Um, some might argue that it's kind of been solved with this, like the sharding aspect. So if you have your own app chain, you kind of shard that, and you kind of break all those apart. Um, yeah, it's, I don't have a good answer on this one. Yeah, I'm sorry. Not, I, don't have, yeah. I don't have a better way to phrase that or yeah, attack it myself. It's that's a tricky one that in my a, view, you have to have security out of the trilemma. So in, in my view, it's it's not a trilemma out of the box, but I, I see where it's coming from. I think you have to have security. If you don't have security, uh, you know, you're going to go away and do something yeah. else. Yeah. Uh, and then that leaves decentralization and scale. And we, we were mentioning before we hit record about decentralization, like how hard and like how much of a sliding scale is yeah. this idea of decentralization? Well, it is an absolute, like the decentralization scale is certainly sliding, right? And you have to ask yourself, what level are we comfortable with? So take Solana, for example. Solana has still has the ability to, to pause the chain. It does it quite frequently because the number of validators is quite small and they will know each other. They can all kind of collude to pause chains and emergencies, which a pure decentralization maxi would say that that is evidence that it is absolutely not decentralized. Now, the other view is that, okay, well, there's some chains that are pretty decentralized, right? Like Bitcoin's decentralized. You'd argue it's pretty decentralized. But for some parts, you know, miners controlled, like especially Chinese miners at some parts in the history controlled such a, the hash rate that basically if you didn't want to get them on board with anything, nothing would change. Right. Nothing would happen. Because, you know, the hash rate of, of their combined efforts was huge. And you have mining pools that have kind of reached almost that size. Um, arguments of other networks, right? Like I know, for example, take Polkadot, for example. Um, a number of the validators on Polkadot, um, because in the initial stage of the network, you were slightly rewarded as a validator if you were more closer to other validators. So that kind of makes it faster to handle messages to each other. It just makes a consensus of the chain faster because everyone like kind of like... Have if, more interaction or... It, well, it's just because we can verify things faster, right? So you make the block speed faster. So if you and I are the same way, we can quickly agree on something. If you and I across the world and we have to send letters to agree on a new like proposal, right. it takes a lot more time. So naturally things are faster when in the same geographic region. And what that meant though, if you took that to the extreme, was that a significant percentage of the validators were all clustered in a single data center in Frankfurt. 
And when that data center went down, 30% of the validators went offline. All right. So decentralization is a very standard, it's like a very okay. slow thing. And another issue here, right, decentralization. Anyone can run it themselves, right? But you inevitably find most people run it on AWS, GCP, Azure, um, maybe Hertzner or OVH if you're European inclined. And so you could argue that, well, if everyone's running these on these five cloud networks. Yeah, that's like a dirty secret. It's a dirty secret, but like that's the thing, right? It, decentralization must be a scale. And those that are pure decentralization, I think, aren't being practical. You got to find it somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if it's not Bitcoin, then then there's no such thing as as decentralization. Um, but then the closer you look at the Bitcoin network, you're like, oh, well, uh... decentralization isn't bad. Yeah. <laughs> they can't they can't agree on something, you know. And so forever they'll be running Sudoku's and polluting the planet. Shift gears here a little bit. Uh, blockchain New Zealand. So. In terms of an industry organization, what do you think, and it could, it could be uh, personal, like why did you folks join the organization? Um, what do you think the value mm. of an industry organi organization like this is? Um, where would you look to find value personally? Um, and or, you know, what should we be doing as a group? I think when it dawned, I, the, the main reason why we joined it dawned on me when we're looking at graduates or interns for the summer a couple of years ago, and we put advertisements out, and everyone that kind of applied was like, wow, there's a blockchain company in New Zealand? Are you serious? Like, what? Like, who would have thought? And I think that kind of, that triggered for us a, an understanding that a lot of people don't realize that there is actually quite a sizable industry here of blockchain developers. Like, we are over, we... Um, over, I'll compete for our population, I'd argue. Yeah. Um, and because we are so focused on overseas customers, we as an industry don't do a good job in kind of explaining to the, the country or to the people here, to you know, fresh grads at university, <laughs> that yes, there is a there is a, a sizable number of blockchain development teams, and would love to have right. the best and brightest come work for us and work on some thorny problems that no one's solved before. Yeah. Um, for a young software engineer, um, blockchain is up there with AI in terms of like the leading frontiers of, of your field. Um, so for us, the main aspect was how can we join this body to make it more apparent to everyone that yes, there is a big industry here and we can work together to grow it. Um, in terms of things like you know legislation, I, I think New Zealand's pretty okay with it. We're not too bad. Um, my... You would always, you can always be better, right? But the industry moves so fast, and governance moves so slow. I'm kind of a realist here that, yeah. You know, it's it's good enough, and you have to kind of say it's good <laughs> enough. Um, if you are building a blockchain company, and if you are going to planning to launch a token, just just incorporate in Singapore. Just go to Singapore. Just go to Singapore. Yeah. Don't don't even bother. Just go to Singapore. Number one advice. So, do you have an entity in Singapore? Yeah, no, yeah. of course. It's, okay. it's just we have to, right? <laughs> of like, it's, it's, well, it's, it's the thing, right? Because we don't know the, the the tax regime isn't clear. What happens when we mint tokens or we um, issue tokens on a sale? Yeah. You know, what about the handling of a foundation? How does that work? Not clear yet. So, yes, maybe we could make those more clear, and that's something blockchain is that I know is really um, working hard to do. But just go to Singapore. It's yep. easy. So, yeah, uh, I think there's a lesson there, though, right? Uh, watching all of these folks go to Singapore. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but is it because they have like clear rules about 
how things are handled. Yep, that's true. And they've kind of gone, Singapore went and basically said, we'll be more permissive of it and we'll kind of let you, we'll, we'll write the laws intentionally unclear so that you can just kind of do anything. And that's kind of stung them a bit with with um, terror and a few other things that have happened in the last year. So we might see that change over time. Um, but for now, it's 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 the best, like a lot of lawyers in crypto know the regime, so they know what you can, can't say. Yeah. And there's a small industry there. But regardless, like, yes, we're incorporated, or Subquery specifically is incorporated in Singapore. But there's still 20 people working in an office 400 meters from here. Yeah, 20 people here. Yeah. Wow. And, and we're a bit worried that we've, we've tried to hire a lot of people local because we like to be in the same office together and yep. actually talk about stuff. Um, it's, it's, you know, we could do the full decentralized. <laughs> Imagine that, talking about stuff. I know, it's very <laughs> strange. But, like, you know, working together in a team, it's kind of helpful when you can kind of get around and wipe. Yeah. Um, coming up to the end of our time here, ready for some rapid fire? Sure, sure. All right. Uh, are you a hockey player or a hockey fan? I used to play field hockey when I was younger. Okay, you you mentioned about skating towards where the puck is going to be. No, I can't be. skate at all. Oh, you can't skate no. at all. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of hockey here in uh, the southern hemisphere. Yeah, no ice around here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's your favorite place in New Zealand? Queenstown. Queenstown, yeah, it's a good spot. Um, what would you be doing if there was no blockchain? I'd still be in tech somewhere, I don't know. But probably just working for a, a B2B application and tech. Um, have you ever worked not in yeah, blockchain? Yeah, I have, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Um, what was the first token you ever bought? Ethereum. Ethereum? Yeah. Do you remember why? Just to try it out? Just to try, No, I was reading about it, and, and yeah. this Vitalik guy, it was kind of strange, but he was really interesting. Yeah, what a strange dude that strange guy is. Dude. Yeah. yeah, especially like his t-shirts he wears, always really exotic t-shirts. Gotta wear a unicorn t-shirt. Unicorn t-shirts, yeah. Take a hundred selfies, yeah, and then like calmly sit there in a podcast and be like, "Yeah, it's exhausting being me." Like, <laughs> but he's he's like he's a one. So we talked before about like personalities and yeah. avoid them. But like Vitalik is the one. That, oh, don't let Vitalik go down, please. He's like the the last bastion of good hope. I get the feeling that he's doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, exactly that, that, right. That, that's what I think. Uh, did you go to Token Twenty Forty Nine? I did. I was in there in Singapore. What was that like? It was really good, actually. Um, I've been to a lot of conferences this year, um, but Token 24 was really nice because it was in the, the first one I've been in Asia, and we we have a lot of customers in Asia that don't go to the European or the American conferences, especially um, because they weren't, um, and some of them, for example, Chinese nationals that couldn't go there. Oh, yeah. Um, so Token 2049 was a real kind of unique position of seeing a lot of our customers that we never saw before um, and seeing them kind of for the first time traveling since lockdowns. Um, give me some trends, like a top one or two trends that you think are upcoming for 2023 in crypto. I think we'll see a lot of um, organizations go under, unfortunately. Um, I think we'll see a lot of um, Uniswap clones go under, especially, because we've seen a lot of people copying what works in a different place and trying to run that in a new place. Like an AMM decentralized exchange? Yeah, exactly. The, like, the last bull cycle has been kind of, unfortunately, a lot of people have taken what's worked in open source in one place and, and, and copied that and renamed it somewhere else. So that's one thing I want to see. I, want to see. I also want to see a lot more cross-chain interaction. If we don't get that done soon, it's going to struggle. So being able to have chains talking to each other in a trustless way, no bridges. No bridges. Um, that interact so you can 
seamlessly move stuff. Uh, last one for you. Who is Satoshi? Yeah, if I, I, I think there's one evidence that aliens are here and that is that Satoshi, Satoshi is, is still out there and never has been found. All right. Yeah. James, thank you for coming by today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain Museum Podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.